Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Scott Burns, PhD dissertation fellow at George Mason University. We talk about the mobile money revolution in Africa, what M-Pesa is and who is responsible for it, as well as the disruptive technology behind mobile banking and what it's doing to traditional banking and how they embraced it. Scott also shares with us some of the economic themes surrounding mobile money banking. You can check out all the links, resources and books mentioned by Scott in the show notes page at economicrockstar.com forward slash Scott Burns as S-C-O-T-T. B-U-R-N-S. Visit economicrockstar.com for a free copy of the top 12 economics books as recommended by our Economic Rockstar guests. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Internationally now, there's almost 100 countries that offer mobile money services, and there's over 400 million customers globally. That's just an incredibly large number, considering this technology is only about six or seven years old. It's now available in 81% of low-income countries across the planet, and more than 50% of the accounts of individual, individuals with mobile money accounts have access now through that mobile money account to the formal banking system. So this has been a huge impetus for financial inclusion and deepening and overall financial development. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Scott Burns join me today. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Scott is a Mercatus PhD dissertation fellow in the Economics PhD program at George Mason University. Scott earned his BS in Economics from Louisiana State University, where he was part of the Speech and Debate Club and the Phi Eta Sigma Honor Society. His current publications include The War on Drugs in Afghanistan, Another Failed Experiment in Interdiction, and Old Chicago School, New Century, The Link Between Knight and Simon's Chicago Plan to Buchanan's Constitutional Money. Scott's PhD dissertation topic has to do with one of the most exciting yet underappreciated miracles in the market going on in the world today, the mobile money revolution in sub-Saharan Africa. Scott writes for the blog Alt-M, which is a blog run by free banking scholars on the theme Ideas for an Alternative Monetary Future. Scott, your PhD that you're working on at the moment is something that I got some exposure to about a year ago, but I wanted to dive in a bit more and and understand what's going on in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's the whole idea about this money or money, mobile money banking, I should say. So firstly, I love for you to explain what mobile money banking or is it described as money mobile banking, what that is. And where is is it happening right now? Right. So that's a great place to start. I'd say the most popular thing that people associate with mobile money is a product called M-Pesa that took off in Kenya recently. And what M-Pesa basically is, that just stands for in Swahili, uh, M meaning mobile and then Pesa meaning money. It's in effect a digital payment service that allows users to send and receive digital payments anywhere in the country just as simply as they would send a text message. Um, I guess that one good way to think about it for those of us in the developing world is that a lot of us use products like Apple Pay or Venmo or Square Cash, different apps that make it easy for us to send money just by using our cell phone without having to use cash or credit cards or a debit card. And it's kind of like that in the context of Sub-Saharan Africa, except you don't have to have a smartphone to use these technologies. You can just use the type of basic cell phone that those of us who have been around uh, for quite some time were using 10 or 15 years ago, the old fashioned flip phones. And one of the great things about this type of technology is that it's enabled customers to safely store money in a mobile wallet, which is hugely important in sub-Saharan Africa because you have extremely high rates of theft and violence. And so if somebody in your village, for instance, knows that you're going to leave your job at five o'clock and walk to your home carrying a certain amount of cash, it's very easy for them to rob you on the streets and steal your cash. And you have absolutely no way of getting that money back. But one of the things that made this service so popular was that you no longer had to worry about carrying physical cash on you and the risk associated with that. If you have a, had a cell phone, you could store your money on that cell phone. It's password protected. It's much more secure. So even if somebody happens to steal your cheap you know, $2 cell phone that you have, 
it's not that big of a deal because they can't steal all the money that's necessarily inside of it. But there's also some other benefits that are associated with it. You can pay for goods and services at local shops and a variety of retail outlets using mobile money. You can deposit and withdraw cash from thousands of different what are called mobile money agents that are located all across these countries. And that's all without ever having to actually step foot inside of a physical bank branch. And that's why a lot of the economists who study this mobile money revolution have have referred to this as a phenomenon of branchless banking. You don't have to step foot in a bank to actually get a lot of the benefits that uh, customers do at banks. And um, one of the things that you might be interested about, I'm sorry if I'm preempting your next question, but um, is who provides the service, right? Right, Jet. Perfect. Yeah. So um, unlike a lot of the payment services we have today, what you see in sub-Saharan Africa is that telecommunication companies or mobile network operators, I'll refer to them every now and then as MNOs, are the ones who are providing these services. And in the case of Kenya, it's a company called Safaricom, which is the largest telecom company in the country of Kenya. Um, but mobile money goes by a variety of different names in different countries. So in Kenya, it's M-Pesa, but there's a variety of companies all across the continent, from MTN to Orange and Vodafone, who all offer competing mobile money services. So it's not limited to just this one service offered by Safaricom. There's actually literally dozens and dozens, even hundreds of companies that offer these competing services. And I think one kind of interesting question is, okay, why is it that the cell phone is the technology that we use as a platform to connect people to the financial system and to allow them to conduct these types of transactions? And one of the big reasons why telecom companies are so well-suited to provide these services in Africa is because over the past decade or so, the telecom industry itself has absolutely exploded in Africa. It's experienced an absolutely unprecedented rise um, being adopted at much faster rates than even what we see in the developing world. Um, So one of the most surprising aspects of life in modern Africa is that even though when we think of sub-Saharan Africa, we probably get images from movies like The Gods Must Be Crazy of people living in these backwards times and the middle of nowhere with virtually no well, living a very antiquated lifestyle. But even if you visit those most villages in sub-Saharan Africa, one of the most remarkable aspects is that just about every adult, everyone over the age of about 16 or so, is going to have access to a basic cell phone. There's cell phones that are just about ever in Africa, and some of that's because the economics of running a cell phone company make it more, I guess, economical. It's more profitable to offer cell phones to people at the bottom end of the financial spectrum because once you incur the large fixed cost of establishing a cellular network, that's the most significant cost associated with running a uh, telecom company, then the marginal cost of adding customers in the bottom end of the economic pyramid is pretty low. And so your goal is going to be to attract as many customers as possible and offer very cheap phones and cheap uh, cell data plans to get as many people on board as possible. So that's one of the reasons why this technology was well-suited to take off in Africa in a region where people live on only a few dollars a day and a lot of the, uh, in the countryside. Can I ask you, so you mentioned about 10, 15-year-old phones that this works on. How long has this technology been available or this banking been available in likes of Kenya? So in Kenya, this started in about 2007. In early 2007 is when mobile money was introduced. And of course, back then, very few of any people had access to what we call smartphone technology. For the most part, they were using what we would call flip phones, just those old-fashioned Gordon Gecko-style cell phones um, that you know only allowed you to do voice calls and very basic text messaging and things like that. So it's really only been around for about seven or eight years or so. And so this isn't the phenomenon from the financial crisis. This is something that's been in a pipeline developing leading up to that period. So it's totally independent, an independent outcome of what's happened since 07, 08. Absolutely. But really one of the things that helped bring this about, the whole foundation for this mobile money revolution was laid for the fact that up until about the early 2000s, a lot of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Africa in general, um, they had nationalized their telecom industries. And so you hardly saw any cell phone penetration in Africa in the 1990s and even the early 2000s because each country would have a telecom monopoly and As basic economics tells us, monopolies, especially government-run monopolies, are extremely inefficient. So cell phone penetration was vanishingly small in Africa up until 
the early and mid 2000s when a lot of these countries stepped back and they started to liberalize the telecom industry. They allowed for foreign companies to come in and invest and they allowed for competing industries, competing uh, MNOs and telecom operators to come into the African market and compete with the state monopolies. That's when you really saw prices declining rapidly, um, a much better product for customers and this huge explosion, this huge uptake in mobile financial services and just mobile services in general. This is when you saw the percentage of the African population that had access to cell phones go from 1% or 2% to 60 to 70%. I'm sure the traditional banks were quite unhappy with this movement and they'd probably lobby the government to prevent mobile money markets from evolving. Absolutely. Yeah, that's I think one of the most interesting aspects of my research is kind of the political economy of how this came about. And Kenya is a very good example of this because Kenya is the first country where this technology really exploded. And the first reaction the banks had, just like you um, were kind of surmising, was that they said this is competition that's not regulated like banks. It's going to be dangerous for customers. And most importantly, from their standpoint, it was going to bite into their profit margins. It was going to take away customers from them, at least in their mind that they would much rather have to themselves. And so they tried to lobby the Kenyan government and the Kenyan central bank to say, you need to regulate these firms, these telecom companies who are trying to offer mobile financial services. You need to regulate them as heavily and strictly as you regulate us banks because they're providing these payment services that compete with our products. And I think that one of the great things, and this is something that we can certainly get to also in more detail later in the interview, but one of the great things that Kenya did and probably the main reason why Kenya is such a success story when it comes to mobile money is instead of saying, instead of falling prey to the will of the banking system and the lobbyists and saying, okay, we're going to heavily regulate these new financial products offered on cell phones, they instead kind of st- stepped back and took what I'd call a handoff, a hands-off approach and said, you know what, we realize that there could be some risk associated with these new products, but the benefits of having uh, mobile financial services are so potentially great that we don't want to step in the way and prevent these types of innovations from taking off in the first place by stifling and bogging them down with too much regulation at the outset. And so that was what set Kenya apart from so many other countries where you had cell phone usage was pretty widespread um, and there was a demand for these types of services. A lot of countries, in effect, prevented things like mobile money from taking off because they regulated it too heavily. But Kenya was really the first one to say, we're going to take an experimental approach. And instead of stifling this new technology early on, we're going to allow it to kind of emerge in a relatively unregulated or lightly regulated environment. And it seems to pay off for society as a whole. Oh, absolutely. I can visualize the economic diagrams and deadweight losses that might be the result of the traditional banking and government control over the network. And when they, when the likes of Kenya decides to liberalize that particular market and let it evolve naturally, you end up with huge benefits, obviously for a monopoly, that wouldn't be the case, but for the society as a whole, or even for the country as a whole, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a while. It contributes to GDP as well. Yeah. So that's, that's a very good point. And one of the things when you think about um, the types of government policies that were very popular in countries like Kenya and the rest of sub-Saharan Africa in terms of financial regulations, they had a lot of things like what we call know-your-customer requirements, customer due diligence requirements, anti-money laundering laws. And what these, in effect, did, even though they were well-intentioned policies, the idea behind them is to make sure that terrorist organizations and criminal elements uh, don't have access to the formal financial system, basically, to help bankroll their activities – But what they require of all customers is that you have to provide all sorts of documentation, proving who you are, showing what your credit history is, um, providing all sorts of documentation that, quite frankly, people in sub-Saharan Africa just don't have. They absolutely do not have access to things like IDs. They don't have credit histories. And so even though the intention behind these policies is to create a safer, more stable financial system, the unintended consequence of them has been to preclude large segments of the population from having any sort of access to a bank account and to the formal financial system. So it's a great case study. And the the, uh, unintended consequences of these government policies. I had a a guest previously, Naomi Brockwell, also known as Bitcoin Girl, and she talked about how positive 
big use of bitcoins could be in African countries where there's so many unbanked people there. Right. But there's obviously the benefits and drawbacks to Bitcoin. You know, you have your blockchain and your security and so on. But if you lose your or you forget your ID, your your account is gone. Basically, you won't be able to get your Bitcoins. But this seems to solve pretty much all the problems that Bitcoin might have. And I suppose the how it actually evolved so quickly was because you had this large mass of unbanked people in the likes of Kenya who would not have the traditional the account set up for banking, as you mentioned earlier on. So I, I'm sure that's one of the reasons why that has been so explosive there and may not have been successful, if anything, in develop, or more developed countries like the United States or Ireland or the UK, even though we do have virtual wallets in which we can trade uh, or tr- make transactions, especially through PayPal. Right, and that's a kind of important thing to remember is that the reason that we don't see this quite as much in the developing world is because for the most part, if you're lucky enough to live in Ireland or the United States, we have access to pretty good financial institutions. We have access to banks that can provide a lot of these mobile financial services or credit cards, debit cards, things like that that make it easy for us to transact with other people, to save money in a savings account. But if you live in sub-Saharan Africa, like you just mentioned, you don't have access to that. And you can think about it. Think about it from a bank standpoint. If you're a bank and you want to, and let's say you're trying to expand financial inclusion, that is to say you're trying to offer services to more people, uh, you know, poor individuals that live in the countryside, it's very costly for you as a bank to establish a physical bank branch in the middle of nowhere in sub-Saharan Africa. The cost of actually building that facility is extremely high, but probably even more importantly, the cost of maintaining a facility that's not connected to many other urban centers making sure that it has enough liquidity to service the local customers. It's all extremely high, especially when you consider the fact that most of the customers who would use that bank, who live in these poor villages, don't have a lot of money. So you're dealing with these small-scale transactions and small-scale savings. So you're getting very little revenue, but your costs are enormously high. So just when we think about the old brick-and-mortar approach to banking – it's not that economical to, prov- to provide financial services to people who live in the countryside who don't have a lot of money. That is until this new technology came about because what mobile money and banking has done is it circumvented the need for establishing a physical bank branch in the middle of nowhere. Now you don't have to go out and build a branch and deal with all the liquidity costs associated with operating that branch if you just create some way to connect your bank to a mobile financial product, to a mobile money service – you can offer savings accounts. You can offer credit to people without ever having to establish a physical bank branch. And would banks have banks embraced this technology? And are they, I suppose, renting out lines from large telecom industries or large telecoms within the country? Oh, yeah. And that's one good thing to follow up on my point a minute ago about how originally banks lobbied against things like M-Pesa because they saw it as a form of competition. Well, very similar to how. I'm sure that you all have things like Uber over in, in Ireland, too, sharing economy-type products. Um, you'll kind of recall that when those came about initially, things like Uber and Airbnb, a lot of times Uber would just launch in the city before the regulators had a chance to do anything about it. And by the time all the other – the taxi industry and other lobbying groups had a chance to rally together and lobby the local government to say, let's try to banish this, it had become so popular with the local population – that making it illegal just wasn't an option anymore if you're a politician because your constituents like the service too much. It was kind of similar in this case of mobile money and banking in Kenya. Uh, Michael Joseph, who was kind of the the pioneering figure behind mobile money, he saw what kind of a promising future it had, uh, was a very prominent businessman in Kenya, realized just how beneficial this new technology would be. And so rather than kind of sitting around waiting for Kenyan regulators to come up with a bunch of regulations that would regulate them more strictly like banks, they offered the service. They did work in conjunction with a lot of um, people at the Kenyan Central Bank and with the Kenyan government to make sure that they weren't doing something illegal. Um, But for the most part, they said, let's take a big leap forward and offer this revolutionary new product because once the public gets its hands on mobile banking, mobile money and mobile banking, they're not going to want to let it go. And regulators won't have a choice but to allow it to continue because it's going to be so popular to the local population. And so what wound up happening, that 
was completely true. Mobile money took off exponentially fast. And so what banks did was they quickly had to pivot their stance from saying, okay, this is a form of competition. We need to try to regulate it out of existence to saying, okay, now that this service is so popular and widespread, we need to find ways to partner with Safaricom so that we can offer our banking services, savings accounts, access to credit, things like that, through a mobile platform. And so that's exactly what you saw. You saw banks move from saying this is a form of competition that we need to get rid of to saying these services can actually complement what we do as banks. So we need to try to partner with these companies. I'd love to get some statistics from you, actually, regarding, say, for example, Kenya, which was where this all originated from, I'm sure. How many accounts are currently active right now? So there's 30 million, roughly 30 million accounts in Kenya. That's more accounts than there are adults in the population. So that's an incredibly high penetration rate. That tells you that the vast majority of adults in Kenya um, use mobile money services. If not on a daily basis, then at least on a weekly or monthly basis, they're active users. I'd love to go to a very... I suppose, a micro aspect of this mobile money. And we just say, for example, there's a, a market trader. Mm-hmm. How, how does it benefit him or her? And what would they actually do? You know, I know you mentioned it, it avoids money laundering for banks. and But how easy is it for this retailer to do business now that he has um, mobile money banking available to him? Does it reduce the prospects of bad debt, credit controls or credit worthiness? How does it help there? So it certainly helps if you're an entrepreneur. Um, mobile banking has made it a lot easier for you to access credit because one of the really innovative things about mobile money is that it used to be almost impossible for banks to lend money to these small-scale scale entrepreneurs in the countryside because they didn't have any sort of credit history, right? Well, since everyone has a cell phone, basically, and has a cell phone subscription through their telecom operator – what telecom companies have done is they're able now to share that credit information about whether or not that customer pays back their debts and everything um, if they're a responsible customer. So they're able to kind of put together basic credit information, which then enables banks to say, okay, these entrepreneurs who previously didn't have a paper trail of any kind, had no credit history, now we can see how reliable they are, and now we can start making micro loans to them um, more reliably. And so that's one way I'd say that um, mobile money helps um, traders and entrepreneurs in the countryside access credit more cheaply and more reliably. And from formal financial institutions, instead of having to go to kind of back alleys and rely on informal informal payday lenders or, um, you know, loan sharks and people like that. Now you can get a loan from a formal financial institution quite easily. But the other way is that it significantly reduces transactions costs. So if you operate a company in the countryside, it'd be extremely difficult for you back in the old days before mobile money technology to expand your customer base outside of that village. You'd have enormous geographical constraints on the amount of business that you could do. But now with mobile money, we're seeing the rise of e-commerce, of small-scale entrepreneurs offering services to people from all sorts of different regions of the country, and we're seeing this proliferation this movement from small-scale trade and exchange to more widespread, large-scale trade and exchange, which um, those who know the work of P.T. Bauer will know is an important element of the movement from subsistence to exchange. So this ability to reduce transactions costs, to allow entrepreneurs and traders and individuals to more cheaply buy goods and services from all over the country and all over the region without having to take you know a two-day hike to go get um, – whatever inputs you might need for your company, that's a huge boon to business. And can customers pay and transact using this money with the entrepreneur? Absolutely. Uh, That's one of the most um, successful ways that mobile money is spread is it originally began more as ways of kind of remitting money back and forth. So let's say that you're the head of a household and you work in Nairobi. That's the capital of the largest city in Kenya. You go into Nairobi, and you work a job and you remit money home to your family. Um, originally, that's how the entrepreneurs behind M-Pesa thought the service was going to be mostly used. And that's a really important element of what's happening, these person-to-person transfers and remittances. But the largest growth recently has been in what are called business-to-business or uh, B2B transfers. And that's um, allowing businesses to transact with each other 
by establishing mobile money accounts, and then also uh, person-to-business expenditures. You can now, in the same way that we buy a lot of our goods and services online from outlets like Amazon using credit cards and things like that, if you have a mobile money account, a lot of firms now in Africa offer their products in exchange for mobile money. So that's been an absolute huge boon to entrepreneurs in Africa because now customers have many more ways to pay for goods and services. Now, this is expanding into other countries in Africa and, as I suppose, Asia as well. Right. So really over the past few years, in fact, if I, uh, I started this research about a year and a half ago when Kenya was still kind of the big story and the mobile money revolution. But I'd say if I was starting from scratch today, the country that's really taking off right now is Tanzania. It's a neighboring country of Kenya and sub-Saharan Africa. And now they actually have the most number of active mobile money accounts and users. They have over 30 million mobile money customers in Tanzania. Um, it's a larger country, so it's a smaller ratio of the population than Kenya. But it's nevertheless a rapid growth. And it took longer for Tanzania to have success with mobile money because for a variety of reasons, most of them having to do with the fact that at first it was more highly regulated than it was in Kenya. And so you had repressive regulations that made it tougher uh, for customers to access the service and for companies to offer it. And it's also just a bigger country, too. So it's much larger geographically. So there were some obstacles in its way. I'd say that over the past two or three years, Tanzania has really been a key success story. But like you said, it's not just Kenya and Tanzania. This is widespread. Just about every African country has mobile money services now. Um, certainly in sub-Saharan Africa is where you see the highest concentration of mobile money. But also, you've seen an international rise. So it's not just an African phenomenon now. You see countries in Southeast Asia you see countries in Latin America that are adopting mobile money. And in fact, the highest growth right now um, is taking place in countries in Latin America where mobile financial services are really starting to take off, which makes a lot of sense, especially if you look at countries like Venezuela right now, where you're probably desperate to find some alternative to the existing uh, monetary status quo. And so you're seeing a lot more of these Latin American countries move to mobile financial services. And very quickly, I might I might just add something, too, because I, I wanted you asked a, a little while ago about some kind of statistics to get an idea for the scope of this. Internationally now, there's almost 100 countries that offer mobile money services, and there's over 400 million customers globally. That's just an incredibly large number, considering this technology is only about six or seven years old. It's now available in 81% of low-income countries across the planet, and more than 50% of the accounts of individual, individuals with mobile money accounts have access now through that mobile money account to the formal banking system. So this has been a huge impetus for financial inclusion and deepening and overall financial development. So who's going to be the real winner there? I know that we have the entrepreneurs and the, the users of this platform. They're going to be the real winners. But when it comes to the telecom companies, for example, Safaricom, you mentioned in Kenya, I'm sure they're quite, they have to compete for licenses in other countries if they have to expand there. So I don't know if they're in Tanzania or in Brazil, for example. So they're quite restricted, restrictive when it comes to their own exposure or their own use of mobile money. So. How, how, how do they work? Do they, can they actually go into other regions or are their hands tied based on government regulation? Because we saw their deregulation, as you mentioned, their banking, but I'm sure the telecoms industry is somewhat regulated as well. It still is regulated a lot more lightly than it was about a decade or so ago. But you do see telecom companies and sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, that are able to branch across national borders and establish uh, established services all over the continent. And so one of the things that you're seeing, I think this relates to your question, a really promising development that you're seeing now with mobile money is that originally, uh, if you had a mobile money account, you could only send money and conduct transactions with people who were members of the same uh, telecom company that you were. So if, let's say that you and I are both Safaricom customers I could only send money to you as a fellow Safaricom customer within the country of Kenya. That's how it initially worked when it first started. But as other telecom companies began offering these services, um, you started to see that what we call interoperability started to take off, where 
different companies realize in the same way that banks realize that it's in their own self-interest to um, to work with other banks, to accept checks and deposits uh, and money transfers from customers of rival banks. It's in each bank's self-interest to make sure that they accept those transactions. Telecom companies realize that it is also in their financial self-interest to make their services interoperable with other services. That way, um, customers weren't restricted. So let's say that I'm a Safaricom customer and you're a, um, think of another company, an MTN customer. Originally, I would not be able to send you money. And if I did, it would cost me a lot more money. The transaction fees were a lot higher. But today, what you see now is that a lot more companies have established partnerships and agreements with each other where it's easier for me now to send money to you as a customer of a different company. And even if you're in a different country than I am, even if you're in Tanzania and I'm in Kenya, or even if you're in Cambodia and I'm in Kenya, there's a lot of new um, initiatives underway right now to um, allow for interconnectivity. That is to say, allow people from different regions and different countries to send mobile uh, money back and forth at extremely low transactions costs. I mean, compared to what you have to pay through Western Union or traditional money payment outlets and remittance services, it's only a small fraction of the cost, you know, two or three percent as opposed to 15 to 20 percent. So that's a big part of the business model now that we're seeing in mobile money. And again, this is branded. This is within the past couple of years, really. So we're just now seeing this phenomenon take place. But I think that's kind of the new frontier of mobile money is expanding beyond just geographical national confines and becoming a truly international global product. You mentioned Amazon earlier on. Would it be possible for users of, say, Safaricom to upload or transfer money into their own account, say, for example, on PayPal or even buy directly goods from Amazon? Oh, it's certainly possible to connect your mobile money account to something like a PayPal account. I'm not sure specifically about the example with Amazon. I just, I, I'm not positive if you're able to purchase things directly off of Amazon. But obviously, if you can link your PayPal account to your mobile money account, and if you can link your bank account to your mobile money account, then it's just one step removed then from being able to purchase things off of Amazon and other online retails using your cell phone. So it is something that is certainly possible. And that's one of the biggest developments that we're seeing with mobile money, again, is the fact that because the banking system has partnered with telecom companies, with mobile money services. And because now if you have uh, an account at the Bank of Africa, it's just I'm coming up with a generic name for a bank in Africa, a commercial bank in Africa. Um, if you have a mobile money account, you can link your mobile money service to that bank account, to your savings account, and then you can conduct transactions just as easily as you and I do here in the developing world when we buy services off of Amazon where you know we put in our bank account information and we're able to immediately purchase goods and services using credit and debit cards. So we're not that far removed from seeing those same possibilities take place in Africa where people can start purchasing just about anything they want using mobile financial services because banks have made sure to link their services now to uh, what cell phone companies are offering. Scott, before we move on to some of the economic themes coming from this, I'd love to get to know you a little bit better, I suppose, in terms of why you chose economics as a discipline, uh, how you evolved into doing a PhD, and why you actually chose this as a topic. Because it's always an interesting approach. Sometimes we, we it's, it's nice to pick up some little nuggets of information along the way based on your influences and the direction that you've taken. Right. So I got interested in economics. I kind of had a strange path into economics. I um, originally, when I was an undergrad in college, I went to Louisiana State University. I'm from uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is in the news like crazy right now. I don't know if it's international news, but we recently had some police shootings uh, in Baton Rouge that were very tragic. So it's uh, been kind of a hot spot for news lately. But I grew up in Baton Rouge, went to school at Louisiana State University here in town. And originally, my goal was to go to law school. I was interested. I did a lot of um, journalism work. I did a lot of writing for local papers and magazines. And so my degrees were in mass communications and political science and history, um, English creative writing. Those were the things I was studying when I was a freshman and sophomore. But around my sophomore year, so this is 2009 or so, pretty big current event was going on in economics. You had the financial crisis going on. And because I was doing opinion writing for the school newspaper and I was supposed to write about current events and what was going on politically, 
uh, in the world, I decided I wanted to learn about economics. It seemed like a really good, interesting time to start picking up some economics books so that I could maybe know a thing or two about economics when I wrote about current events. And fortunately for me, I was friends with some people who had excellent taste in economics, um, and they followed very good economists and great bloggers. So the first things I was introduced to back when I was, you know, an 18, 19 year old student in college were Henry Hazlitt's book, uh, Economics in One Lesson. Um, it's an absolute classic. It's something I still assign as a teacher, as a professor now. When I teach intro level classes, I usually assign that as one of the uh, supplemental readings for my students. I also got to read because I love doing satire. I was kind of a comedy guy. I like doing a lot of satirical writing. I read the work of Friedrich Bastiat. Um, his book, The Law, in particular, is just an absolute classic. Uh, Bastiat was a 19th century French economist um, who was extremely influential on me, and he was one of the most eloquent um, writers uh, in explaining economic ideas to the general public, I think, who's ever lived. And I was also introduced to the great Austrian economists. So I very much consider myself um, to be a follower of a lot of the great Austrian economists like Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek. Uh, so I, was, I, I read Human Action around the time I was about 20 or so. Um, and that had a profound influence on me as an economist and what I was interested in researching. Um, so I think those are some of the kind of uh, earliest things I was introduced to. But to get more to the specific question of why I chose this research path and what I really got interested in, interested in, in economics – um, because the financial crisis was going on, I got really interested in monetary economics and the financial system itself. And I was fortunate enough to uh, pick up some books by two economists who still profoundly influence me today and who I get the pleasure uh, – I have the absolute pleasure of working with now uh, up in Washington, D.C. at George Mason University. One of them is uh, Lawrence White, Mary White. He is my dissertation chair, and uh, he is one of the key figures in the modern free banking school. Um, he has written extensively on money and banking under laissez-faire systems. His book, uh, Free Banking in Britain, was one of the first ones I read when I got interested in monetary economics. And it talks about free banking systems in Scotland and how um, even though Scotland had a relatively lightly regulated environment, it didn't have a central bank, there was no deposit insurance, the government played an extremely minimal role in the financial sector, it had one of the most stable and successful uh, banking systems that the world has ever seen. And then one of his students, George Selgin at NYU, um, later wrote a book called The Theory of Free Banking back in 1988. And that was a book, I'd say more than any other, that's what got me really interested in monetary economics. Um, so George Selgin and uh, Larry White deserve major, major kudos because I think that they're just fantastic monetary economists. And I have uh, the distinct privilege of being able to work with them. We're actually starting up a monetary workshop in Washington, D.C. at uh, uh, with with Dr. Selgin at the Cato Institute. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast who might be in the vicinity of Washington, D.C., who's interested in monetary economics, to shoot me an email, to reach out to me, and I'd be happy to include you in our email list. But we try to bring together scholars and students from the D.C. area who are interested in monetary economics and alternative monetary arrangements together. Um, so those two economists in particular have played a profound role uh, in influencing what I have researched and their work, too, on the connection between financial development and economic development is something that really got me interested in what I do now. So that's really what kind of spearheaded my interest in making this my dissertation topic is I think that economists, even though it's widely acknowledged now that financial development plays a critical role in fostering economic development, I think it's still not fully appreciated why that's the case, how that's the case, and um, what types of benefits relatively free banking systems have in terms of, uh, in terms of promoting more rapid and also more sustainable economic growth. So that's just a research niche that I think um, there's been some excellent research done and but that especially with some of these developments that we're seeing with mobile money in sub-Saharan Africa, there's still plenty more things to write about. And I think that having um, the kind of background that I do in free banking theory and in uh, monetary economics, I think I can offer some unique perspective to that. You're so blessed to have found a niche so pretty much straight away in the field of economics and 
also to have these influencers around you. And Washington, D.C. seems to be quite a hotbed when it comes to economics. I spoke to a number of guests, for example, you know, the World Bank is there. That's right, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I spoke to Shanta Devarajan, who was actually last year in, on episode 46, and he was telling me there, he, I got a tweet from him the other day saying, Paul Romer is now chief economist at the World Bank. And again, you know, you have a lot of economists. I, mean, I say there's a high concentration of economists in Washington, D.C., and it's such a great initiative to have that monetary workshop at the Cato Institute. Oh, yeah, no, we're, we are extremely pleased to be launching that um, because, like you said, there's so many great scholars that are really within a stone's throw away from Washington, D.C., and so we want to be able to bring people together and not just discuss what's going on right now in the field of monetary economics, but also kind of get creative and discuss what types of alternative monetary regimes um, might be better suited to deal with uh, the problems that we face today than the status quo that we have uh, under the current kind of discretionary central banking system. So a lot of the economists that have influenced me as well are people like Scott Sumner and David Beckworth, um, who were kind of in the market monetarist tradition, who have argued for the uh, you know, the importance of establishing strict rules that bind central bankers. In their case, they propose having central banks adopt NGDP targets. And this is probably getting too far afield for our conversation. But, um, you know, I think it's certainly for those listeners who are interested in monetary economics and macroeconomics, well worth looking into their research. Um, so we kind of, you know, reincorporate a lot of their ideas and scholars who were interested and in, basically just alternatives to the status quo that we have today, where I think that we've had central banks that get far too much credit in terms of being able to stabilize the economy. When historically you look at their performance, um, they have not performed much better than the flawed systems that preceded them as central banks. And I think that just as in the United States, for instance, we've had the Federal Reserve since 1913, and it came about after some of the panics of the late 19th and early 20th century, um, when a lot of politicians started questioning the status quo uh, in our monetary system. I think that now that 100 years has passed, the track record shows that the Fed has not done that great of a job of stabilizing the financial system. So just as much as we needed to reform the financial system 100 years ago, which many of the problems were attributable to excessive regulations, not to a lack of regulation, but to the fact that the government played an extremely heavy hole, heavy-handed role and regulating the banking sector. I think that just as it was needed a hundred years ago to talk about how to improve the financial system, we need to have a similar discussion today uh, in light of the Fed's most recent failures and the problems that central banks around the world face today. No better way than have a community of like-minded individuals, and not even like-minded individuals. You, individuals, you want to have those who come from different ways of thinking in order to have that healthy debate and find out true you know, research and discussions, and it's a great way of networking, really, and expanding your thought process. Oh, but you also mentioned a book there, uh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, and just just dropping it in there, I recently did up a top 12 economics books recommended by guests on the Economic Rockstar podcast, mm-hmm. and Henry Hazlitt's book fell into that top 12. And so I, if anyone wants to download that PDF that I have, you can go to economicrockstar.com forward slash Scott Burns, B-U-R-N-S, and I'll put a link in there for you to um, download that copy. And also all the links and resources mentioned by Scott will be on that link too. Scott, back to economics then. I I want to get a little bit heavy here, if you don't mind. All right. And I, I think some of the listeners could be pumped for this anyway. So, and going back to the whole thing about mo- uh, mobile money, and I, I want to identify some economic teams that we can relate to. I know you mentioned Monopoly when it came to the telecoms and the, the banking, but let's look at the development of the economy, the development of the microeconomy, as you could say, if there's a small region. And how could we could relate that theoretically? It's all well and good to, it might appear that based on the, what's actually happening here, it could be technological. It could be something where we talk about uh, relationships, but uh, marketing, but the, the core economics for those people who want to relate that, your topic to it. Yeah. So I think one interesting way to look at my research is, um, and just researching the topic of the rise of telecommunications and the developing world in general. Uh, one interesting thing is that even though there's a lot of economists who predicted that you'd see natural monopolies, that is that the telecom sector 
really was only conducive to having one large firm run it, that um, even if you had competition initially between multiple firms, that only one firm would be able to take off and would assimilate, would, you know, would absorb the other firms and that you'd only have one giant monopoly. That was kind of a, if you read a lot of the literature on things like telecoms, it was viewed as being a natural monopoly. And so as a natural monopoly, a lot of economists felt like it needed to be strictly regulated or nationalized by the domestic governments. But one of the interesting things that we see about telecom companies, and this translates just as well to the issue of mobile money, is that when you do have um, you know, a relatively laissez-faire environment, you don't see a tendency towards any type of natural monopoly. Instead, what we see in all the countries that have had uh, telecom liberalization and deregulation is we've seen a tendency to have multiple um, telecom companies competing with each other and who, because of this competition, are constantly striving to find new, more efficient ways to provide cheaper services to customers. So we're not seeing any sort of tendency towards monopoly. Um, what we're seeing is exactly what economists who understand the market process would predict, which is that um, you have this dynamic competition between multiple multiple firms. Any firm that becomes stagnant or that does not do a good job of running its business is going to be driven out by those other businesses. And it's extremely costly for a lot of the reasons that students who take kind of micro 101 classes learn about why it's very difficult to maintain a monopoly because of internal and external competition and all sorts of constraints you'd have to face to maintain a monopoly. We simply just don't see uh, many cases of what we call natural monopolies in the telecom industry. And the same thing applies uh, to the kind of subset of their services that are mobile money and banking services. What we see is multiple firms, uh, both banks and non-bank companies, offering these mobile financial products. And the tendency has continually been for prices to be lowered and lowered. So the transactions costs associated with these services have gone down and down over time. So what we're seeing, again, it's a very dynamically competitive market. Um, and I think that's extremely promising for those of us who believe that the real first step to having this sort of financial development is to liberalize the financial system in the telecom sector. When it comes to money and banking, there's, say, a number of criteria in economics these type of, this type of theory tends to fall in. For example, we have minimum reserve requirements that banks have to have in order on, on deposit. When it comes to money, it's a standard of deferred payment. There's, there's all of these lists. Do those factors relate to the mobile money as well? Or is this disrupting the whole idea that, of, of money and banking in, that we see in Economics 101? Well, I think in a lot of ways, it is a disruptive technology, kind of in the Joseph Schumpeter sense of it's, um, you know, mobile money is driving out some of the more outmoded ways that we used to consider. Um, think of kind of money and payment services. You're seeing a lot more people rely on cell phones and mobile money and rely a lot less on using cash for transactions or kind of old fashioned, like using the postal service to, to remit money to your family or relying on Western Union. So we're certainly seeing some disruption there, but in a lot of ways, I think that um, some of the discussion you hear in terms of the mobile money revolution about just how radical this technology is in changing what we think of as money uh, might be a little bit overstated in the sense that really all that we're seeing, all that mobile money is doing in a lot of these cases is it's providing a way for individuals to, you know, take to instead of relying on cash, of you know, relying on government-issued currency in these countries, instead of having that be your only way of holding wealth, um, it's enabling people to plug into the formal financial system. So it really is not just a way of kind of getting rid of um, older ways of doing business, but it, it's also a complement to the formal financial system because now instead of holding cash under your mattress for security, you can deposit that cash at a local mobile money agent, and there's thousands of them located all across these countries and even the most remote villages, and by depositing that cash with them or depositing with your bank, all of a sudden you're turning money that otherwise, so that cash that was sitting on, under your matches, m under your mattress, uh, beforehand was basically just serving. You're in effect holding IOUs from the government. You're in effect making an interest loan, interest-free loan to the government by holding on to that currency. But now, by depositing with the bank, what you're really doing is saving. You're contributing to the formal financial system by, by providing banks with savings that they can then intermediate 
into investment projects that can help enrich the community and fund entrepreneurs and uh, new businesses. And so what you're really seeing is that mobile money is a complement, I think, to the financial system. It's helping to increase the amount of savings that flow into the banking sector and contribute to more um, banks have more access now to loanable funds that they can lend out to small businesses. So to me, that's really the key takeaway from the mobile money revolution is not so much that it's abolishing all the old ways of doing things. It's really complementing the banking system and a lot of the kind of traditional ways that we think about how countries get rich over time by increasing their savings rate, accumulating capital. I think that in many ways, mobile money contributes to that. Can I ask you one more question, if you don't mind, Scott, regarding the mobile money markets? Is the connection between financial development and economic development and its contribution to GDP? In episode 58, I spoke to Morton Jervin, and he has a, a book on poor numbers in Africa and why economists get it wrong. And he's saying that it's very difficult to get accurate statistics on GDP in Africa. Now, I, I can't speak for all of Africa, or, or I'm sure Morton Jervin hasn't either, but he traveled so, in numerous countries, and some you actually mentioned there, and found it very difficult to get these this data. Is mobile banking, will that help get a more accurate picture of, um, of the data for these governments or central banks or whoever gathers the information? Well, it will certainly contribute in a positive way to economic growth and development. Whether or not it's going to help contribute to having more accurate data, I can't really speak to as much. But really, my research in a lot of ways, in my mind at least, there's two key economic themes that my research kind of relates to. And one of them is what you've just discussed, this connection between financial development and economic development and what factors cause long-run, sustainable economic growth. And a lot of economists have written on this connection between finance and economic development. And from a macroeconomic standpoint, what a lot of them have argued is that financial development contributes to economic growth and development in two ways, by increasing the volume of savings and investment. So this is something I talked about a few minutes ago. Um, but, you know, one of, the one of the things that you need as a country when you're trying to move from being a poor country to being a rich country is you need to be able to accumulate capital so that you can become more efficient as a producer. And the way that you do that is by increasing your savings rate, by having individuals save money so that that money can be invested into uh, different capital projects so that you can build up your capital stock. So that's one way that financial development contributes to economic development is by making it possible for a country to increase its rate of savings uh, because then banks can intermediate those savings into profitable investment projects. But another way is simply by increasing the efficiency of savings and investments. So one point that um, a lot of very good monetary economists stress is that financial intermediaries like banks usually do a better job of allocating uh, savings and an economy's scarce capital resources than, say, a government central planner would. And this was a huge problem that we saw in sub-Saharan Africa back in the 1960s and 1970s in the post-independence era was you had a lot of governments nationalize the banking system and try to kind of centrally plan the economy to take all the savings from their citizens and allocate it to uh, different government planning objectives. Um, and this was an absolute disaster when it came to economic growth in Africa and also to financial sector development. But what we're seeing now is a lot more reliance on the private financial sector. And uh, one of the points that I think a lot of the good economists who've studied this topic stress is that these private financial intermediaries have specialized information about what the best investment projects are in an economy. And they also have a financial incentive, obviously, to make sure that they only invest in projects that are profitable, that can yield them a profitable return for them and their customers. You can't squander a bunch of money if you're a private bank because you'll go out of business. Whereas if you're a government and you want to you know, fund some infrastructure project that turns out to be ill-advised, there's really not much recourse against you. You might run up your national debt, but you don't face that immediately, immediate constraint of bankruptcy. So those are some ways that we at least kind of generally understand theoretically how finance contributes to economic development. And then we've talked about from a microeconomic standpoint, from the individual's point of view, how finance can contribute to getting out of poverty and helping to contribute economic growth and development. And this topic of what's called financial inclusion has become extremely popular in the past decade or so amongst economists at the World Bank of the IMF because they're starting to realize that financial inclusion 
is really one of the key ways to get people to escape poverty because having access to the formal financial system, and that's what I mean when I say financial inclusion, is having access to a formal bank account so that you can save money for the future. It, it allows individuals to get out of poverty because you can start saving money to send your kids to school or to start your own business. You can access credit if you're trying to, as an entrepreneur, invest more in your business. And you can also save more so that you can access both physical and human capital. And those are extremely important ways to help um, increase your productivity as a worker and in doing so escape poverty. So I think that we theoretically understand how it is in a lot of ways that financial development contributes to uh, economic development. Quantitatively showing that is kind of a separate question. There's a lot of economists. Um, in fact, some of the best economic work has been done on this topic over the past 10 or 15 years, and even dating back about a half century or so to the work of uh, Ronald McKinnon and Shaw and a handful of great economists who established this link between financial development and economic development. But even though it's very tricky to parse out how much more rapidly economies grow once they have a developed financial sector, more and more economists are starting to agree on this notion that financial development truly does contribute in a positive way to more rapid economic development. Scott, one more question I'd love to ask you. If you were able to step into a DeLorean, where would you go and who would you like to spend some time with? And I'd love to know what you'd ask, what question you'd like to ask them. I would really love to go back and visit Adam Smith. And I feel bad because that's probably a cliched answer that you get quite often on, a, uh, on an economics podcast. But I would just love – he was such a fascinating figure, not only a brilliant thinker, um, but you know, such an entertaining and unique figure from everything I've read about him um, as a person. I would absolutely love to get to talk to Adam Smith, and I'd love to – if I could take this DeLorean trip both ways, I'd love to be able to put him in the car and have him travel to the 21st century so that we could see what he'd say about a lot of the developments we've seen in the world because I think in many ways he'd be very pleased to see – the expansion of free trade and the positive uh, steps that we've taken in terms of economic growth. But I think that he would you know, be disappointed, obviously, in other areas where we haven't necessarily uh, taken as fondly to his great advice from uh, the 18th century and the wealth of nations. I'd be curious, too, to see you know, one of the things that economists like to talk about is how even though Adam Smith was very much a defender of free markets and the invisible hand, um, he did talk about what role government should play to deal with things like what he considered market failures and you know various ways where government intervention might be necessary. Very limited in scope, obviously. He wanted a limited government, but he did feel there were some roles for government in areas where markets um, simply would fail to result in uh, desirable outcomes. And I'd just be curious to bring them into the 21st century – and to have him see all this new technology that's developed over time and see if he changed his mind on some of those areas where he felt like the market would fail to produce efficient outcomes. Because to me, this research I'm doing on mobile money is precisely one of those examples because a lot of economists have argued for years that financial development and inclusion, that is extending financial services to the poor in the developing world, was not something that for-profit private companies could do. Now, we could not rely on the private sector to do this, that we needed to have government-established banks and all sorts of foreign lending programs, um, foreign aid-type programs, I mean. We'd have to have government play a very heavy-handed role in bringing this type of change about. But I think that what we're seeing is that thanks to technological innovations that have come about because of the liberalization of the telecom sector and things like that, we don't have to rely on this kind of state-led approach to financial development. You can instead have an entirely market-led approach where private companies now, it's in their self-interest now, it's profitable for them to offer services that we could have never envisioned 30, 40, 50 years ago, much less in Adam Smith's time in the 19th century or 18th century, we would have never been able to envision these things. So I'd be very curious to see if he became even more kind of radically laissez-faire. Even though he is very radically laissez-faire for his time, I think that coming into the 21st century, he'd probably become even more so seeing the types of uh, technological developments that the free market has yielded. Nice. Scott, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you. 
Well, I'm actually in the process now of making my website because I'll be on the job market soon in economics. Um, I'll be graduating from George Mason University this upcoming spring. But uh, so you'll have to kind of stay posted in terms of my personal website. I would definitely encourage readers to visit Alt-M. That's A-L-T-M.com. Um, it's a blog that I contribute to that's run by the Cato Institute Center for Financial Market Alternatives, headed up by George Selgin. So that's one place I would definitely direct readers to go to. And then they can also just search me online. I'm a Mercatus Fellow here at George Mason University. And so you should be able, uh, by searching Scott Burns Mercatus, to find a personal webpage with some more information on me and some of my uh, upcoming publications and presentations. You can find all the links to Scott on economicrockstar.com forward slash Scott Burns, B-U-R-N-S. Scott, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star. Thank you, Frank. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.